to Back to Excited, episode 188. My name is Erwin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetchPlantPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fooleman? I'm none too shabby. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Um, so the Leafs have had an interesting week uh, in a variety of ways, and we're going to chat about it. Uh, I guess the first thing we should discuss, really, is, well, I guess we're going to discuss a lot of things. Uh, including, you know, the Muzzin injury, Nick Robertson, our fourth line, Austin Matthews, um, a couple of rants that we have planned for your viewing benefit. But we should start with the Muzzin injury because that's probably the biggest news. Yes, Jake Muzzin suffered what the team is calling a neck injury. The fear was obviously concussion. I do not want to pretend to a medical expertise I don't have. I am not entirely convinced that there's no concussion element there, but who knows? Um... He's on injured reserve right now. He's not on long-term injured reserve, which is a salary cap uh, transaction. And the Leafs don't really need to put him there right now because they've already got the Matt Murray LTIR for right. their salary needs. And they can also always put him on LTIR retroactive to the first day he missed, basically. Yes, they can. So they have not foreclosed any options by not doing that. And I think that a few people have been optimistic based on the... Uh, the LTIR designation not being employed here, and I would love to be optimistic, but it doesn't benefit them anything to do it right now. So I don't know that that's especially significant. Um, now, we don't know exactly what the timeline is. The team has been very vague, understandably. Um, Mitch Marner gave a quote where he referenced, you know, the important thing is that Jake Muzzin in his life after hockey is able to play with his kids stuff like that that obviously adds a very somber tone to it it's quite true that's more important than anything that's going to happen on the ice uh but it leaves open some questions about what happens with the Leafs defense in the interim we obviously you know Jake Muzzin's health as a person matters more than anything we're about to talk about there we can't offer much more than we wish him the best we hope that he gets back in his best form soon um, but for now, this is what we're looking at with the team is how do we adjust to his absence? Um, and thus far, the adjustment has been Rasmus Sandin getting that promotion that he seemed to be angling for in terms mm-hmm. of ice time and pairing status. Um, he's been playing with Justin Hall in the last couple of games. Um, and it hasn't exploded on us. So I no. guess that's the starting point. <laughs> right. So it's been two games. The Leafs have won both of them. I think had solid-ish performances through them. Uh, the, the team generally, I mean, not necessarily Sandine Hall. I can't say I've noticed that much of Sandine and Hall, which in some sense is good because it means, okay, it's not blowing up. But in the other, on the other hand, it's like you notice defensemen when they are getting scored on. And while it's good that that hasn't happened that much in these two games, it also doesn't necessarily mean that's predictive of how much they're going to get scored on going forward. Mm. Um, the numbers on them are not incredibly kind. They they had a hard time controlling chances against um, both the Jets and the Stars, this pairing specifically. So I think it's a lot of wait and see. Yeah, I think it's, you know, two games is obviously way too small a sample to really dive into and say, oh, here's exactly what happened. At least from, from data, you have to kind of scout it. And I, I like I said, I didn't notice them enough to, to really see anything super obvious. 
uh, that that gave me you know reason for celebration or for you know abject horror. I guess already Riley and Brody's minutes are going to increase slightly, and they they have because Muzzin it was always the more trusted of that pairing with Hall, him and Hall. So not having him there means that I. Keith is going to use that pairing slightly less. They're, they're still getting like kind of real usage, of course, because because they're, they're our second pair almost by by lack of better options. But marginally, Riley and Brody are going to take on a bit more of of those minutes as well. Yes, um, yeah. So Riley was paired with Sandine last night. Um, played a lot of his minutes against uh, Cole Perfetti um, with a memorable incident. Sure. Sorry, did you say Riley was paired with Sandine? No, sorry, I said uh, Sandine was paired with Hall last night yeah. and played, uh, Sandine played a lot of minutes against Cole Perfetti, against uh, mm-hmm. Pierre-Luc Dubois. Um, you know, these are not easy minutes. If you're playing no. the Winnipeg Jets, these are real players that they have. Um, you know, we've talked about Muzzin and Hall playing in those tougher situations, um, getting harder work, and that's a big increase in difficulty for Sandine, although he is playing his natural side, which is much more comfortable for him. Sandine Hall is an interesting uh, pair of players. I don't think it's the kind that you would necessarily draw up. If you had uh, your ideal fantasy situation, Sandine is a very gifted puck mover. Not tremendously fast, not tremendously physically gifted. Um, Justin Hall is kind of rangy and reliable. Does a lot of little things well that I think can get underappreciated. Sometimes with the puck... He does some things that make you want to tear your hair out. It, it has been known to happen on occasion. Not quite to a Martin Marinson level, but um, it, it's it's occurred on occasion. So I don't know how long this is going to sustain itself, but of necessity, it, it may become an intensive pairing. Um, and, and then what happens when Timothy Liljegren gets back in November, presumably? Mm-hmm. Um, is that viable with Rasmus Sandin? It hasn't been as great in the past, but both players are kind of ascending in their growth curves. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of... I don't think Hall's had a great year. At the same time, I don't really think Keefe is going to trust Sandin Liljegren. Um, no. Although, I mean, I think... I don't think Liljegren is much worse than Hall on the whole. Yeah, I yeah you know, I don't know. And Giordano Liljegren has a track record of being a very yeah, successful Yeah, so I think that, that's so. good. And it is sort of interesting that we didn't decide to move Giordano further up the lineup to play with Hall instead, or like say, rejig things so that we have like Giordano Brody. Mm. Uh, that could just be, you know, the Leafs are sort of respecting where they think Giordano is at this point in his career. It could be that they, you know, don't have a ton of faith in Victor Mete playing on the right side and sort of just want a steady presence to like solidify that third pair. Yeah, which I think is understandable. Like Victor Mete. I think is like a six seven guy. And yeah, you're not you're not like terrified if he's in the NHL for spot time, but I don't think you want to play him higher than than where he's currently being played. No, uh, not at all. And you know, probably not the most defensively robust is the kindest mm-hmm. way to describe Victor Mete on defense. Um, you know, putting aside his his own um, abilities in that regard, he's five nine. So not to be too much of a traditionalist here. Do you want to put him with Rasmus Sandin and have a remarkably short defensive pairing? Well, that's not something I think most coaches are seriously going to consider. 
um, mm-hmm. unless both parties are somehow Jared Spurgeon. So, yeah, I, I think we're going to end up seeing more of this pairing, I guess is the takeaway. So love it or hate it, I suspect that it will have to continue for some time. And it's encouraging that it hasn't detonated on us. Um, I, again, this is Sandine kind of showing what he's got. If he can be a legit second pairing contributor with Justin Hall, I think he's proved himself in a major way. Um, and that probably sets him up to get a considerable raise on his next contract. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, kind of as a, an aside thing, the Sabres extended Matias Samuelson, who is a defensive defenseman for them. Um, and it was the cause of much discussion in the NHL in terms of uh, how the contract landscape is shaping up. Because Samuelson got an extension that was eight years in length um, before he had scored his first NHL goal. Oh, sorry, seven years in length. But uh, yeah, he had zero goals as of the time of the contract at an AAV of $4.285 million a year. That's sort of where you're looking for a second-pairing defenseman now. Um, so if the Leafs can get that kind of value from Sandine for the next couple of years at 1.4, that's terrific for them. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked again and again about how the Leafs need to find some real value out of these draft picks, out of these uh, less experienced players. And this is kind of where they need to show it because all of a sudden that defense really relies on younger players. Yes, so this is going to be basically something for, for the Leafs to to monitor or for us to monitor, rather, as we as we watch the Leafs. Um, in general, I guess, it, it, as uneven a start Muslin and Hall had together. I don't think anyone is incredibly comfortable with with this current uh, defense. It, injuries have have made it, you know, worse than it it should be at full strength. Obviously. Yeah, I do think you know Lilia Grin got to a, a point last season where he was fairly trusted by both the coach and the fan base in a certain role, and on the right side, maybe more significantly. And his loss throws things into sharp relief. I wasn't counting on a huge bounce back from Jake Muzzin, um, except in PDO, but now that's kind of not on the table, So, at least for the time being. So yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of scary. I, you certainly, I, I have to give Kyle Dubas some credit here. He was very patient with the Rasmus Sandin negotiation, and he didn't get rushed into some sort of trade to say, F you piss off he ended up signing sending to the contract he wanted now we're very grateful to have him so yes um sorry one thing i should note uh mentioned that they got kind of outchanced against the the jets yesterday uh given that it's a small sample i should also point out that they did outshoot the jets so this yeah. is one where corsi and xg didn't uh, agree which can be due to like you know defensive foibles which the leafs and and Sandine slash hall are not really strangers to um, but at least territorially, they were they were doing okay. It's not like they spent the whole time in their zone, but the times that they spent in their zone, uh, in their in their own zone, they gave up some pretty good chances. Uh, mm. And I think that's really the the worry with Sandine Hall. Mm-hmm. Right, Sandine isn't the best in zone defender at this point. Hall, I think his his relative poor, relatively poor mobility can sometimes really hurt him there um they they can get yeah if they get hemmed in i don't really feel as safe as i do with with jake muzzin there who i thought was one of the least best in zone defenders 
Yes. And, you know, Muzzin in so many ways seemed to be the antidote for a while to things that were wrong with the Leafs, things that the Leafs were bad at, Muzzin was good at. Um, and you can take that right down to having one playoff series, sadly. Uh, mm-hmm. And now that sense of security is gone, even if he wasn't declined regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we don't know if he's coming back. I'm sure the Leafs are hoping, well, on advance of the playoffs, they will have him back. Um, that's really what they want him for. And uh, so we'll have to see. Still, you, you know, I guess this is a bit of a lukewarm segment, but certainly it hasn't been a disaster. And not a disaster is uh, sometimes kind of nice, actually. Mm-hmm. So, right. Let's talk about something that's been really fun. Nick Robertson. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on against Dallas, we basically witnessed the game that I think more or less in the eyes of almost everyone who's watching or following the Leafs made Nick Robertson an NHLer. Like he, yeah. he's not he's not riding the buses anymore. Yeah, that was the Nick Robertson game. Um, and it wasn't just that he scored two goals, although it helps. Yeah. If you could, if you could do if you could do that every game, you yeah. should. Look, all we need is like a solid 164 goals a year, and you're basically locked in on the second line. So, yeah, he's good. Uh, I mean, he's a great shooter. We've always known that. Uh, He pulled the trigger very um, swiftly, I guess is what I've said. What I've worried about his shot in the past is that it's heavy, but his release time maybe wasn't the best on it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the OT winner was him doing a pass, pass back with Austin Matthews, and he smoked it, and it looked dope as hell. So... Yeah, anyway, that was great. But more than that, and I'm sure this is the thing that made Sheldon Keith glad in his heart, is that um, Robertson killed an opposing rush to start the rush that ended with him scoring the OT winner. Mm-hmm. Um, Robertson's uh, motor has never been in doubt. Hugely high-energy player. But yes. he's he's added more and more elements to his game, which is exactly why you keep players in the minors for longer periods. And... You know, he's still only 21, and now we're having him emerge as a guy who looks like he can be an NHL contributor. Now, it's early yet, as, well, I mean, everything in this podcast should be it's early yet in front of it. But, yeah, he looks like he's going to be sticking around. I 100% agree with that. I think it is really worth mentioning. I I think Nick Robertson's best attribute in the NHL I think a lot of people will say a shot. That's probably true. The the if it's not the shot, it's the motor. The motor is huge in part because it gives him chances to use the shot, and it makes coaches like it, it makes him more endearing to coaches as well, mm-hmm. right? Like the high revving motor is very 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 important, and I think that's gonna that's gonna get him a lot of a lot of time and like a lot of leash when things aren't going well, or when mm-hmm. he, the goal when the goals aren't going in. So, yeah, I think that part of it is, is very, very important. We've talked about, I guess, for a couple of years, oh, you know, the, the ideal situation for the Leafs hole at second line left wing is Nick Robertson shows up and proves himself to be better than all the other options and then kicks ass there. Now, we're two games in to yes. this, to this, so we, we can't say, oh, that has definitely happened. Um, and, and their game against Winnipeg was not as good as their game against Dallas. Um, by there, I mean that second line. Uh, at least at 5v5, but it was still generally pretty good. Yeah, right? like there was nothing that happened that makes you think Nick Robertson should be shuffled off. I do, I don't want to blame him for failure to protect himself, but I do wonder as a smaller player who is afraid of nobody, um, who goes into the corners, who fights for the puck in sometimes these high danger situations, I hope that he protects himself 
mm-hmm. against opposing hits. I do worry about him a little bit sometimes. I, I thought the last guy I thought this about was Nikita Sashnikov. Mm-hmm. You might remember who was a much lesser player in terms of talent, but he played like hell and he took a beating. And so for the sake of Robertson's health, I, I do want him to know maybe when he could let up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Haley Wickenheiser alluded to this when describing his development. She said like, Sometimes you actually don't need to go 110% in every single situation, but it's good that, you know, most of the time he does do that. Right. So, yeah. No, that's an important point. Um, the other concern I have with that group is like, Robertson cannot be expected to be an amazing defensive presence at this point, and that's probably the biggest weakness of the tavares Nylander duo. Mm. And even against, against Winnipeg, we saw them give up some really good chances. Now, granted... Some of them, you could have Patrice Bergeron there, and it would have still happened because I don't think Patrice Bergeron can like mind control his forwards and defensemen to stop them running into each other, which is what Justin Hall and William Nylander did and gave up essentially a breakaway. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, on, on the margins, that stuff could matter. It hasn't mattered yet. And again, the numbers for that second line, we talked last week about how Tavares looks rejuvenated. He had two goals yesterday, both were on the power play. Um and Nylander's kind of kicked ass on the power play too. They've been, I think, good at even strength as well. Uh, that That's very important for us, that rejuvenation. Robertson seems like the best option at this point to to continue that. And that's going to be a kind of hugely important thing. Um, in particular, because Austin Matthews still hasn't really started scoring yet. No, he has not. And the question is, should that worry us at all? And I lean basically no. I think every like everyone is very clear what a fantastic goal scorer he, he is. The puck will start going in for him. Also, I, just before we embark on this, he did have three assists last night. Yeah, so. and, and he had a bunch <laughs> of shots as well. I think he had over one individual expected goal Yeah, uh, last night. So he was super active, and he's been super active. The pucks just aren't going in. And yeah. he also seems like weirdly bad at handling the puck this year it's weird I, I don't know if i'm just noticing it more because i'm like paying attention to like oh matthews hasn't scored yet that's odd um yeah. but it just seems like the puck will bobble on him randomly or or he'll fan on a one-timer yeah and, and you wonder you know i mean on the most elemental level we are early in the fall the ice might be worse mm-hmm. but um putting that aside yeah like i think there are ebbs and flows I know that some people have remarked, I think um, this might have been Sabres Kevin, I noticed, who said this, but he was talking about um, Matthews maybe not getting to the absolute point-blank range. Mm -hmm. And Matthews can do a lot of damage from outside point-blank range with that snapper of his. So it's not the end of the world. But yeah, there's... I guess if you want to look at all of the evidence, you can find things where you can say, look, if this trend continues for another 15 games, then we start to get a little little bit worried. Um, And he's coming off a season where he was probably the best player in the NHL in terms of on-ice performance. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can say McDavid is the best player in the world and proved it in the playoffs with these terrific series that he had, but I think Matthews was legitimately the most valuable player. Um, in the regular season. So yeah, you know, the bar for him is so high mm-hmm. that he can be absolutely on fire in terms of getting assists, in terms of playing well, in terms of controlling play. And we're still holding him to a standard of, okay, but are you on pace for 60 goals? Right. <laughs> and, and he has like a, over three expected goals to start. Like This is all situations. And he scored one, right? Yeah. And 
we don't expect Matthews to just be an average finisher, but to be a well above average finisher. Yeah. So uh, the line still looks good when he or like the 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 line that he's on still looks good in terms of like their shots and chances. I think they're they're dominating uh, a, a handful of the games they played. I thought he had a pretty bad game actually against Dallas, um, but against Winnipeg that line was really really strong, and they had a similarly strong game la- the previous Saturday night against Ottawa. Yes, and I do think you know it's six games. Yes. Like, and our prior should be very strong that this is a very good team and Matthews is a superlative player. And I mean, I think not, everyone knows that. It's just something to keep in perspective. Not to sure. get, like, too depressing about it, but we've seen seven game periods where Matthews only scored one goal. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> right? So How it's do you like. That? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, if you want a big picture takeaway, you can say, look, the Leafs played six games, they won four of them. You prorate that out, that's like a 110-point pace, give or take. Right. If you win two out of every three games, you're a very, very sure. good team. Yeah. So, <laughs> by and large, the big picture on this sh- shouldn't be too devastating, I guess should be our takeaway, for all the upset. And I like it's just that's how it's going to be. And that is something, actually, that I'll talk about a little bit later. In, in my rant, we each have a bit of a rant this week. Um, but before we get to that, we wanted to talk about the fourth line. Um, as it was constituted before last night, when it was sort of regrouped, um, we were kind of excited about this fourth line hmm. of Nicholas Abe-Kubel, David Kampf, and Zach aston Reese, And it hasn't gone as well as we'd hoped. Um, in extremely uh, defensive usage, um, and they played with energy, I thought. They played aggressively. To my eye test, they didn't look as bad as they seem to have to other people or as the numbers suggest. But they weren't um, driving a huge amount of play in their minutes. And I, I've heard some people suggest, look, maybe they need someone who can transition to offense a little bit more. Like Pierre Engvall, which, say what you will, he's good at that. Um, or Ilya Mikheyev, again, gets it from the defensive zone to the offensive zone and he Whatever he does while he's there, he gets it there, right? Um, so maybe we underestimated how much this line needs players doing different things mm-hmm. instead of being three guys who are good at the same thing? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm not willing to concede defeat on this line just yet. <laughs> um, I, I, your guns. Yeah, no, I think it, it very well could be that they need, they need someone of a different type. But, you know, yesterday... Um, Yesterday, the fourth line with Kampf, Clifford, and Simmons had a very, very good game. They contributed a goal, and they were actually, aside from the dumb penalties that both Simmons and Clifford took, they uh, actually controlled the puck relatively well against mm. uh, against Winnipeg. And it's not like those guys are transition dynamos or anything like that, no. right? So I, I think I think a part of this is just. You know they they play they play low minutes they play you know defensively and they really sort of need their in zone defense to be good because they're going to be there a lot and that's the part that hasn't been as great as 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 we've wanted I feel mm-hmm. um, I actually don't think they've been too bad at like getting to the offensive zone and like just kind of killing time there um, but I think they have been kind of. They haven't been as stingy in their defensive zone 
you know, when when they do have to play there. And they will have to play there a lot because they're getting really defensive usage, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I, th- I think that part of it, that part of it, I think, should hopefully get better. Um, th- they are playing, like, this incredibly low event style still, right? Yes, which is what we want. And to be clear, like, I don't think the bar for this line is even necessarily win your minutes. Mm-hmm. It would be great if you did. David Kampf did last year. But if you have a fourth line that can take this kind of eating dirt usage and, you know, get 47% of the goals, but there just aren't a whole lot on either end, that's good. That's that's right. entirely the, respectable. The, the, the problem is, yeah, it's just like they've, they've given up too many good chances. Yeah. Um, and, right, and that's which, the one thing they can't do all no. the time, right? So No, because they absolutely don't have any firepower to to like go the other way and and make up for that right Mm -hmm. so yeah that 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 would be an issue yeah i would also note um wayne simmons obviously was once a fantastic power forward is still in the organization the organization loves him Mm -hmm. they would love the chance to put wayne simmons back in the lineup if they think that they can do that and ice the best team so i think that you know, Wayne Simmons had a great game last night. If he strings a couple of those together in his opportunities, like, I think the team will try to play him. And so, with the greatest respect to Zach Aston Reese, I don't know if it's a, <laughs> an entirely equal competition for those jobs, or him or Nicholas Abe-Kubel. Like, there will be a bit of a sentimentality on the side of Wayne Simmons, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same, I mean, I should also correct myself because, like, I, I, I didn't realize that this was this was the case to the degree that it was. I, I mentioned just now that that line was doing an okay job at like getting into the right areas, like territorially. But they do also have the worst shot rates against in the league. It's not, and in addition to like the worst expected goal. So like, they're both giving up disproportionately high shots or disproportionately bad shots, and also playing in their own zone a lot. So and that's what you don't want. No, you really don't want that. Um, so, I mean, we know they're going to play in their own zone a fair bit, but they, yeah, they can't give up such a high quality of chances. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so maybe yeah, you're right about, and others are right about, like them needing a vertical threat to to help them get out of the zone a little bit easier. Maybe put like Pierre Engvall there instead of, of one of the wingers. But then, what do you do with the other winger, really? Because they, they're not really a great fit for the third line. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, I I could see uh, Abe Cabell working maybe better than expected with Kerfoot and Yarncroke mm-hmm. um, as a bit of a forechecking presence. Also, people get mad at Alex Kerfoot. I get it. He had a very bad game at a very inconvenient time against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, he was also traded for Nazem Kadri. Obviously, kind of painful in hindsight. Alex Kerfoot is fine. He had a pretty right. poor... Um game against the Jets too. Had a kind of a pretty brutal flyby for for the Jets first goal. But I mean that doesn't take away from your general point, which is that yeah, he is yeah. He is fine. Yeah, um, to be clear, sometimes he fucks up. But I'm just like I feel like he's become the target for a disproportionate amount of disliking criticism. Not that there shouldn't be any. I'm just saying that there's a lot considering he's fine. Mm-hmm. Basically. I guess that would be my opinion on him. Anyway, yeah, I think you can shuffle that bottom six a little bit and see. What yeah, happens. you know what? I'm looking at the numbers now. I mean, it is only five to six games for for, for these guys, so I don't want to overreact too much to them. But they're they're actually less successful than I than I even realized. 
watching them with my eyes. Like, I, yeah, I thought they were they were doing. I thought they were they were handling things like a little a little better than um, than they were, and that I was just like judging them harshly because like I see like these isolated incidents, but like they no they've, they've kind of consistently not really been able to to handle handle their stuff uh, at at the moment. Um, that's that's not a that's not a great sign. I'm still willing to give them a bit more time, but yeah, yeah. I, I I mean. If you're going to start shuffling things anywhere, you should be the fourth line. So, yeah, uh, and already, you know, we're we're seeing that begin to happen. So we'll see how far it goes. Again, it's six games. I know everyone knows that, but it helps to remember that. Um, six games into last year, I think the Leafs were just pulling out of a tailspin. They had a brutal start. Um, a couple of games where they looked just dreadful. Yeah. So. This is actually an improvement on that. Uh, and, as yeah. as a side note, by the way, um, mm-hmm. the, the I'm, look, I'm just looking at the least by Corsi against per sixty. So the mm-hmm. top three, be, meaning the the worst shot suppressors on the team thus far. This is just raw, not like isolated or adjusted for usage in any way. It's the bottom line: Obi Kubel, Aston Reese, Kampf. Then next is Muzzin Hall, mm. and then next is Tavares Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I should say. Um, Tavares Robertson in particular, like their their offense is so ridiculous when they're when they're on the ice, they're clearly like a net positive. Um, and actually, even Hall and Muzzin are like above, clearly above water in uh, in shot attempts. Um, but like, it, I mean, this is one of those things where half the team has to be below average relative to the rest of the team, right? Like you can't yeah. have you can't have thirty five guys or twenty five guys with a positive core zero, as Katya is fond of saying. Yes, and sometimes we can forget that. You know, the job is not to be as good as the the very best players um, f- for these guys. It's just to be good enough. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I guess just one passing note, and this will not go very long, because all I can say is he's been good enough. Ilya Samsonov, mm-hmm. good enough. Um, that's what we said. That was the Leafs' bet on goaltending, was that some combination of Samsonov and Murray would provide adequate, if unspectacular, goaltending. Right now, Samsonov is meeting that bar, and not coincidentally, the Leafs are winning games. Yeah, I mean, I'd say he uh, he's been better than than adequate thus far, right? Like he he's actually been above average. Um, yeah, which um, like I mean, you know, I don't necessarily expect that to continue, but they don't, you know, they don't force you to give the goals back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they already happen. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway. Let's just hope that continues. Obviously, with greatest respect to Eric Schalgren, I don't want to see him too many more times. I may have to, but, you know, we'd, we'd love to get Matt Murray back because I think he's still better than Eric Schalgren, warts and all. But, yeah, anyway, that's been somewhat encouraging. So this rant that I've been teasing is something that I thought of after the loss to the Arizona Coyotes. If you cast your mind way back to last Monday... And uh, there's one example of it that's coming to my mind. Uh, Nick Alberga goes by the Golden Muzzy on Twitter. He he asked, uh, he said, you know, the Leafs just lost to an ECHL team. How does this loss compare to the Zamboni driver? And of course it doesn't. Um, and I kind of thought, you know, the reaction to that whole Coyotes game and to some of the losses was a good description of Toronto hockey hysteria. And we all know about this. We all live in it. But I wanted to talk a little bit about how it works and what it is 
and why it's so infuriating and why it leads to bad analysis. Because there's a lot of really silly Toronto Maple Leafs analysis. So let's start by saying, like, why is there so much insane junk about the Toronto Maple Leafs? Well, because there's a huge demand for content about that team. Uh, to be clear, we're beneficiaries of it in the sense that people listen to this podcast where two mild-mannered nerds mostly agree with each other. That wouldn't happen in every other hockey market. Um, but that demand means that there's this appetite to consume story after story after story on the Toronto Maple Leafs. And you can see this at The Athletic, which, by the way, does good Leafs coverage for the most part, I think. But if you compare how they cover the Leafs to other teams in lots of other sports, there's just this huge um, avalanche of material about Toronto. You'll, you know, you'll get two stories a day during the season. Um, whereas other markets are getting one story a week done by a national writer, if that. Um, that demand of, I want to read and watch and hear things about the Toronto Maple Leafs leads to people trying to find things to say. And the natural tendency is to make things seem important or significant. And I think that leads to maybe the first type of bias that I wanted to mention, which is immediacy bias. Whatever just happened is the most important or good or bad or tragic or catastrophic thing in the world. You know, losing to the Arizona Coyotes on a Monday night is fine. The Arizona Coyotes suck, but they're probably going to win 15 games this year. Most of them won't be against Toronto. And that's just how hockey goes. Um, if you live and die by every single game, in which your team plays down to a bottom feeder in October or January or March, you are going to be really miserable. Um, I think that it's really worth remembering that once you zoom out, a lot of this stuff doesn't really matter. It's not great. You wish they had beat the Arizona Coyotes. But this sort of thing can happen, and it's not the most important thing in the world. Um, another related thing is sort of a narrative bias, which is everything that has happened is proof for or against larger theories about the team. And you have to remember that sometimes in hockey, shit just happens. You know, you can't string together every single event and say, this is evidence that the Leafs are fatally flawed because of X. Um, and the truth is, sometimes you know, that will be suggestive. You'll see a trend over a long period of time that the Leafs do have flaws. But a lot of times it'll just be, yeah, sometimes the puck doesn't go in for you at the wrong time. Sometimes your goalie gives up a flub. Um, I think it can be very tempting to lose sight of it in that perspective. It also leads to overstatement. If you've got a theory that something is tragically long, wrong with the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that's why they lose in the playoffs all the time, your theory also has to accommodate the fact that they were one goal away from beating the Tampa Bay Lightning. And, you know, you can say, oh, that's a moral victory. I don't care about those. Yeah, I don't give a shit. But your theory has to explain why they got so close if there's something tragically wrong with them. Um, I think kind of the antidote to these kind of biases is just to zoom out a little bit. And look, in the course of losing to the Arizona Coyotes, I can get annoyed. Absolutely. But then you have to think, okay, this is one game and it's October. And, you know, it's not worth buying into this, this content machine that is constantly telling you 
this is the worst thing that's ever happened. Oh my God, you were a sucker for cheering for this team who are a disaster in every respect. It's like, no, they're a good, somewhat flawed team that's going to experience some ups and downs. They'll lose some games they should win and they'll win some games they should lose. And keeping that in the back of your head is probably good for staying sane in this market. So that's just what I wanted to say. I understand and agree with a lot of it, but to be clear, the Leafs are an embarrassment of a franchise that is going to cause us like extreme heartache. They are a terrible tragedy, and I lament that I've devoted so much of my life to their study. Right. So, I mean, that's the thing. We're not immune to to, <laughs> to this stuff as well, right? Cause, no, of course not. Like, this is all, it's all very human, very human things to, to think and, yeah. and to react in, and in, to be, in this yeah. way. To be clear, I'm not trying to lecture anybody who, after some terrible blown coverage leads to a goal against on a Tuesday night, goes, this fucking team, man. I've done that. Everyone's done that. And that's fine. It's when you get the morning after published content that is telling you, like, oh, are the Leafs doomed or something like this? And it's like, okay, once we start zooming out and trying to do some actual analysis, which we don't have to do all the time, don't have to do it right away, not everyone has to do it. I'm just saying once that process starts, we should engage our brains a little bit and maybe turn off the panic button. You know, like, I, I think that that's sort of the real problem in Toronto. Is just that the, the hysteria seeps into how people actually try to say things about this team. Um, right. I... Yeah. I... I think that makes sense. I mean, at the same time, it's you have to strike this balance of when, when things happen, we should react to them in some way, or we should like update our opinions in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do that in like a relatively structured way without falling prey to one of these biases. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And like we've been wrong on this podcast. One thing a podcast does is it teaches you humility if you ever listen to anything you've ever said before. Mm-hmm. Um, in the course of 188 episodes, I have been wrong on tape quite a few times. <laughs> um, but at the same time, sometimes things that you were worrying about turned out to be relatively minor in the big picture of things. So, yeah. I, I will say also some of it is just the Leafs have lost an embarrassing fashion in the playoffs. And right now they can't fix that. And they won't be able to for quite some time, no matter how good they are. Um, and so there's a desire to make things make sense. That I guess is what I would say. It's like they want, people want an explanation in October for why the team lost in, spring, in the spring. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to come by. Um, yeah, anyway, you were uh, reviewing a list. Yeah, so my, my bad take is... I mean, I feel bad for this because this is like, basically ESPN did a, um, who are going to be the top 100 players in in the NHL this year? And like, the reason you put out a list like this is so that you get people being like, oh, what a terrible list, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and to be clear, there is like, no matter what ordering you came up with, I, b- I bet if you if you if I created an ordering and then I looked at it like a week later, I'd be like, oh, what a terrible list! This is t- they put, they put that person there. <laughs> How stupid! Because um, it's it's very hard. At the same time, this is a terrible list. <laughs> so the thing that caught my attention originally is like I saw a tweet about this list, and normally I don't really give these lists the time of day because 
you know, for all the reasons I just stated. There, it's just an impossible task. It's built for engagement, which is nothing wrong with that. But like, you know, often not going to get anything like super productive out of it. Um, but I saw this tweet that in this ESPN top 100 list, and as far again, as far as I know, this is a list projecting who the top 100 people, top 100 NHL players will be this season. And Patrice Bergeron was number 51. Um, so as anyone who has listened to the podcast will say, we have a healthy, maybe unhealthy amount of respect slash fear of Patrice Bergeron because we've seen him kick our ass too many times. Yeah, it's he like is Sauron. Yeah, he is He is not the 51st best player in the NHL. He is much, much better than that. Yeah, and th- like this is, by the way, why these lists make people so angry because if you put 50 players ahead of them, first of all, some of them are going to be wrong probably because you're underrating him. Some of them are going to be insane. And yeah, they, they put Patrick Laine ahead of Patrice Bergeron. So the, the other thing is they, they put a bunch of Patrice Bergeron's teammates ahead of him. Like they put Charlie McAvoy higher than him, Pasternak, Marchand. Those are all great players, mm-hmm. all very, very good players. Even, you know, I can even imagine, hey, I can, I can imagine thinking, hey, these guys are actually slightly better than I expect Bergeron to be this year because Bergeron is like 94. Yeah. I wish that mattered, by the way. Right. Um, <laughs> yet, at the same time, Patrice Bergeron last season... Six months ago, won the Selkie Trophy, and everyone was like, "Yep, that was deserved." Yeah, like this is not even and a question. It, it was like that's not going to be overturned by history. I don't think so. No, yeah, it, he he clearly deserved it. Early returns this year, he's really really good. He still has like a sixty two percent expected goals, right? So like maybe they're just discounting him heavily for like the line mates he plays with, and like they're saying, okay, these guys are the ones driving the bus more so than Bergeron now, but. Christ, like I, if you if you tell me you're starting a team this year and you want to win this year and you're taking Patrick Laine over Patrice Bergeron, I really want to compete against you. <laughs> That's just not a, like I just can't buy that. They put Kyle Connor ahead of Patrice Bergeron. I know Kyle Connor scored like 47 goals last year. He doesn't fucking play defense. No, at all. He has no interest in it, and I think it drove uh, Paul Maurice to just flee the state or the province. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, like this this. Like, I can't get over... Patrice Bergeron is not some, like, hipster, oh, look how smart I am at recognizing this player who you don't pick. He's won a bajillion Selkie trophies. He's won a cup. Everyone knows that Patrice Bergeron is one of the very best players in the world. But this... I don't understand how this still happened. All I can think of is you have to bake in a huge age-related decline. Yeah. And at his age, in the abstract, that's not the craziest thing, but... First of all, he's just shown almost no signs of aging, including in the early going this year. Um, but second of all, I think you really got to recognize, even if he starts falling off, as we sort of hope, he's falling from such a great height. Like, Patrice Bergeron is the best defensive forward in the history of the sport, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's... Like, there's anyone that I would put above him. And I know that I wasn't alive in the 70s to watch... Bob Ganey or whoever the fuck. But I think Patrice Bergeron has established that. The one that struck me was Zach Wierenski, who I think is a nice man. But, like, over Bergeron? Like, I think Zach Wierenski is, like, a pretty cool number two defenseman to have on your power play. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I... I... 
I just can't see a world in which I think Zakaretsky is better at helping you win hockey games than Patrice Bergeron is. Like, at, currently. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know. As you say, these lists are designed to get people talking, to get people arguing, to get people questioning them. And it's very hard to do one without sounding like an idiot. But, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I do think that, like, there's a clear bias running through this list from what I've seen and heard of it towards just guys who get points which is not the craziest thing and is a very long and time-honored tradition in hockey but that's the only way you end up putting Patrick Laine ahead of Bergeron mm -hmm. so yeah and, but like, yeah you don't even have to be like a huge believer in the value of expected goals against RAPM or something like that like it's Bergeron everyone knows right like this is not saying Evan Rodriguez is better than Zach Wierenski <laughs> Right. This is this is like the guy who has won the most trophies for being the best defensive player in like the history of the sport is better than Kyle Connor, who met his goaltender yet last night. <laughs> and probably argued with him about why aren't you bailing me out? But yeah. I don't know. It's it's pretty pretty striking, I guess is what I would say. And it shows you, you know, I think sometimes on this podcast or maybe even in our little Twitter bubbles we can forget sometimes how things look to to other commentators you know we we take for granted that you don't say things like this mm -hmm. i guess anyway um yeah did you have any thoughts on the reverse retros by the way um one in particular and it's does detroit hate this idea i i, I apparently according to their fans yes they do like that that's <laughs> um like the their their old owner uh mike illich i think it was who who's, yeah. who's dead now but like his family still runs it mm -hmm. was just like i we have two jerseys that's it so all these like stupid marketing ideas to make new jerseys we're just gonna like, sabotage them basically <laughs> you, you know <laughs> i actually gotta respect that um first of all i'd like to begin this by saying this is not me raining on detroit's jerseys in general i think the detroit reds are the best jerseys in the league yeah in regular usage they're great really logo, good great colors very strong um for the first round of reverse retros detroit did what looked like a gray practice jersey with the logo on it and it looked it looked like dog shit i think it's fair to say um and now this one is a bunch of black lines on a red jersey with the word detroit written in capital letters across the middle and it is an improvement on the gray practice blouse, but it is not good in any objective sense of the word. And furthermore, it's, it looks like something I could have come up with. Mm -hmm. I got a C plus in art in grade six. It's not good when I can envision myself designing your jersey. <laughs> and people are saying, you know, like they don't have enough to go back to because they haven't had that many jerseys in their history. And I'm saying, look, you have, I don't know, 350 years of history of the state of Michigan. Pick an event and just say, yeah, we're riffing on that now. Um, and then yeah, just it, make it, something people want to wear. It's not like some Adidas executive is going to, like, shoot your marketing team in the face if, like, if there's not a adequate enough tie to a team in the area or whatever. Yeah. Like, the, I think the Devils uh, pay tribute to the Colorado Rockies because they, they moved apparently from denver to east rutherford at some point i have no i was not aware that was a thing all um, through the 70s like 17 teams relocated or something like that i've lost track of most of them yeah so 
like I don't know that, that that doesn't seem like an incredibly tenuous or that doesn't seem like an incredibly strong connection but like it makes a decent looking jersey so go with it Why um not? the Leafs one is like a kind of the, Le- the Leafs I kind of have the same issue that a lot of people say the Red Wings have and that like okay like there's not enough there's only so much you can do with like blue and white and a leaf mm-hmm. uh this jersey looks okay it's better than the one last year it gets like zero points for creativity but yeah like it's fine the truth is is that there's never any need to have a third leaves jersey the two that they run with are basically it and you don't need to do more and i have to say i've never liked the the green saint pats ones i know some a lot of people love them people got angry at me for tweeting those mm. but like it looks like they were sponsored by spearmint gum and i think that it's bad yeah i mean this one is like a pair it's basically just an inverted 1962 white jersey right like just mm. almost exactly the same just colors inverted essentially yeah and again so like it, that's fine yeah but, but yeah. like i it, it it's it, it's pretty whatever yeah like i'm not rushing out to put this into my closet where i can put i mean the only jersey i have is my yogurt one that i bought on a whim during the pandemic because i was going insane but mm. um i mean yeah. this is definitely better like last year what do we have we did we have like the uh the gray ones last year or something like that i don't i might have blocked it from my memory no, it wasn't very good, but it also, like, my recollection, and maybe this was just the fit on the model, but it looked long, you know? Like, it well, looked, I mean, like, very long. Well, the other things, like, hockey jerseys are, like, a weird thing, or a, t- a tough thing to wear to anything besides a hockey game. Yeah, that, that's true. But, like, I, I don't know if it was just, like, the piping or the lack of the piping or something, but I just recall it being, like, this is quite flowing. Yeah. You know? Like, all, there's a reason, like, all the, all the models and, like, the promo... Uh, are like wearing it over hoodies or something because mm-hmm. it looks like kind of weird other and and they only and like the they, they focus obviously on like hip up because you know they're not trying to sell pants or whatever mm-hmm. but like it also always looks weird with with pants with like tapered or slim pants which are like i guess what are mostly in style nowadays it's what i see the kids wearing what the youths are <laughs> it's the youth's drip as they say <laughs> God, I'm so old. Oh, man. Yeah, so... <laughs> but this is the thing. is Because a hockey sweater is meant to go over equipment, it's a bulkier garment than most mm-hmm. things you would typically wear. Unless you're wearing your shoulder pads to the arena, which would be the act of a crazy person. Um, it's always going to look bigger on top than your pants on bottom. Yeah. You know? I'm also just looking at the... the I'm looking at the, the article with them now where they have all the promo photos. Mm-hmm. And, like, so for, for the... For the women models, mm. it looks like they did not create like women versions or female versions of the the sweaters that are like okay. more tapered. Rubber. So it, they they it looks like they're wearing tents. <laughs> That's what you want. Yeah. Although you know what? I forget where I saw this. The NHL is apparently touting itself as having uh, grown successfully in terms of female fans in the last decade. Uh, more than other sports so maybe maybe tents are what people want i don't know mm. it's i mean probably I... not because of this yeah <laughs> if we're being realistic this probably has nothing to do with it but yeah no i i i, <laughs> I don't think I'm, it's because you know. i'm slightly skeptical that the that the jerseys are are what are attracting <laughs> women to the sport which if that's true that's 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 great to see yeah um yeah i don't know why the Bruins one is weird. I, I mean, this is not great radio because I'm like describing pictures <laughs> or like badly describing pictures at the Create a picture see. in your mind. Yeah. Of this. Or, or follow the, along at home. 
I mean, the, the Bruins one just looks like a bear that looks like it's a little bit scared of itself. <laughs> it's like a bear that's gained sentience. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, what am I? <laughs> it's a bear that's realizing what that team is going to look like in three years after. <laughs> <laughs> it's the bear looking at its cat friendly page. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. You know, I will say, I thought that on the whole, this was a better crop of jerseys mm. than um, the first reverse retros, which were mostly, I th- well, I thought they were hit and miss. A couple of them were nice. A lot of them were quite weird and bad to me. Yeah. Well, I, I, I like this better than what the NBA does, which is just make like 35,000 different um, jerseys to the point where it's like you watch a game and you're like, wait, which team is which again? A- and... Yeah, it gets it gets frustrating with the NBA because like they, they just try to do too much. It's like sometimes the Lakers should just wear gold and the Celtics should just wear green, and we don't really need to mess it up any further than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Th- there is a definite incentive to overthink it or to reinvent the wheel or to do anything because the truth is there are only so many jerseys that are necessary. Right, and this is, entire, this is this is just to, you know, to move some merch, basically. Yeah, and, you know, that's as legitimate as any other motive in professional sports, because that's what it's all about. But, uh, yeah, I was, like, I thought most of these were good. The Kings one is always cool. The Kings have, like, a cool color scheme, which they, you know, they ripped off the Lakers, but why not? Right, um, they have a cool color scheme, and then they decided to go with black and gray. Yeah, don't do that. I know that, like, I don't know if they got scared of purple. If they considered it, like, a, a little bit too feminine or something, stop it. First of all, stop worrying about all of that shit in general. But specifically, purple is a great color, and more teams should use it. Um, you look imperial. It's great. Um, yeah, the the Canes one is kind of dull. Uh, yeah, the Haps one, unfortunately, is very good. It's, like, it's very, yeah. it's obviously Expos. Yeah, the, I'm going to be honest, the Haps one is actually sick. I don't even yeah. like the Haps jersey. Like general, uh, that's one but... thing they have over us like their jerseys are just better yeah probably uh i you know what though i don't like the habs logo like and, and i sincerely don't like it like i i'm not even trying to cover my grudgingness i think that it's it's weird it looks like a toilet seat <laughs> that's you know that, that's my my heart's feeling on that the florida one is really good the florida oh with um yeah the, the sun the... and then the cross they have a cross palm tree and a hockey stick over yeah sun and it's like on sky a... blue and it's like yeah that's a good one again this is not good radio you could turn it off at this point if you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're listening. we're just riffing on this yeah sorry there is a very cool combination of colors on the florida panthers jersey and uh yeah i don't know actually i would say objectively like two-thirds of these are at least pretty decent and I think they got a little bit more imaginative on a couple of the colors. Like, they're willing to have three or four colors going on, even though it risks making it look a little bit busy. Yeah. The Seattle one, I honestly, like, if you if you put Seattle's reverse retro and their actual jersey next to each other, I'm not sure which one I'd be able to... Like, I feel like it's one of those things where, like, you know, those tests that, like, just slightly alter a company's logo and see if you notice, like... um. Like, make the Amazon logo with the A to Z arrow going above the word mark instead of below the word mark or whatever. And you're like, wait, something seems off here, but I don't know which one is correct. Yeah, I could say that. I mean, the thing is, Seattle had a weird situation with the reverse retro Yeah, thing, yeah. Right? What, what, like, what exactly are they <laughs> retroing? But, but that's they, the thing. That they, yeah. they could have just, they could have done, like, Sonic's theme. That's true. People love the Sonics. I don't know. Would they run into... 
to any kind of copyright issue because the Sonics, someone still owns their copyright. And I don't know if, like, the team is supposedly in the on the verge I, of maybe coming back in the next. I, I, I am I am not a lawyer, but I'm going to confidently say no. no. Like, <laughs> you, you, you cannot copyright a color, surely, right? I guess. Yeah, no, I, you would have to go beyond a color. You can't copyright yeah. just a color, but I like yeah, certain design elements, maybe. Yeah, no, probably not. But like, it's not like the the Devils have the rights to the Colorado Rockies, like colors and iconography or whatever, and they use that. Are we sure they don't? Well, the Colorado Rockies are like still an existing team owned by a different ownership group, right? Oh, but I thought they were referencing um, like the old hockey team. Oh, yeah, that would make more sense. Yeah. Um, anyway. Th- that's why I was so confused. Like, <laughs> the baseball team moved there and moved back. That's weird. And the that Devils were like, we're just we're part of this experience. <laughs> we just wanted to commemorate it on our jerseys because why not? Yeah. Oh. Okay, that, that makes so much more sense. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we have to stop riffing about these jerseys that our listeners can't see. Thank you for your patience. Um, we're exploring the format in our hundred. Oh my god, we've been doing this for like six years at this point. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. The, okay. Sorry. La- the lightning one looks terrible. The lightning one looks like an Ed Hardy shirt. Oh yeah. No, the lightning one is like, and but you know what? It is kind of more honestly reverse retro in a way because yeah. I'm like, this is what people thought was cool back when everyone was a big dork. Right. No, it, it's it's very much like an eight-year-old designed this, and I, it wouldn't shock me if they moved more merch than, like, I don't know, than the Flyers did, for example. Because, like, if you're going to get the Flyers one, you might as well just get, like, a regular Flyers jersey. If you're going to get this, you're, like, making a statement, whether it's ironic or unironic. Yeah. And, so. you know, I think, especially as time has gone on, people have gotten more interested in maybe just embracing their freak flag and like wearing cooler and weirder and dumber things ironically mm. however i don't know that any amount of irony can save the fact that the tampa bay lightning has tampa bay written in weird cursive and lightning written in block capitals it is not <laughs> that font inconsistency is not something i think you can overcome so <laughs> the lightning bolts on the side also kind of look like flames instead of lightning bolts which is weird <laughs> They're rubbing in that they beat them in the finals that one year on a dubiously allowed goal. Mm. Um, yeah, anyway. So, yeah. Honestly, like, I'm fine that the league does this and gives us something to talk about and or make fun of. Oh, yeah. And you know what? I think the St. Louis Blues one is actually kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Blue and yellow is a winning color scheme, as the Swedish national team can tell you. Yep. And, yeah, it, it's not like that in, insane jazz jersey that they <laughs> almost wore the one time where it's like... A saxophone soloing all over the shirt. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, man. All right, cool. So I think that probably does it for the, the, the fashion version of Back to Excited. <laughs> We're <laughs> Thank sorry. You we will talk thing. about actual hockey most of the time and most of the episodes. Yeah. Uh, you... <laughs> we appreciate your patience. You can catch all of mine and Fuderman's stuff at PensionPlanPuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>